All right, we're going to pray together and then get into the book of Revelation. So let's do that. Father in heaven, uh, we're going to look at some exciting things this morning. One of the most exciting is the fact that you're going to return. Lord, that's a promise of the book of Revelation. It is a promise of the Bible. And it's one that should keep each one of us as your children longing for that moment. It's my prayer that the things that we study today will help create some of that longing. Not only create it in some hearts, but stir it up in some others. Father, would you keep our eyes focused on the heavens? Would you keep our ears listening for that time when you return? And would you help us share you with everybody else we come in contact with until that time? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Charles Swindoll tells this story. It's a pretty good one. He says when he got out of high school, he was going to go to college. But his father told him that it wasn't enough for him to go and get an education. He also had to learn a trade in case whatever it is that he got educated in fell through. He needed to have something to fall back on. That's, that's very, very good wisdom. So he went to work in a machine shop. So Swindoll said he'd go to school in the evenings and go to work during the day, and he never regretted the time that he spent in this shop because he met a lot of different people along with learning this trade. One of the people that he worked with, he calls Tex in his telling of the story. He says Tex ran a lathe in the machine shop, and he was very, very good at it. In fact, he had done it for so long that he could almost do it in his sleep, and at times it appeared that he did do it in his sleep. Swindoll said that he would keep an open pouch of chewing tobacco in his back pocket. And throughout the course of the day, about once an hour, he would reach back there, grab hold of a big handful of tobacco, stick it in his cheek, chew that up, spit it out for the next hour, and then reach back there and grab another handful and stick it back in his cheek. Swindoll got to where he was kind of enjoying watching the timing of it, seeing how all of that worked. And he and Tex had kind of built a rapport through the time that he was there so they could joke back and forth about it. <clears throat> but he said on one particular day, he was watching a cricket walk in front of his machine. And his machine was right behind Texas' machine. And that brought about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his life. He walked around the front of his machine. He took his foot and he sent the cricket to cricket heaven. You do the math. And after it was gone, he reached down, picked up said cricket, and placed it in the tobacco pouch of Tex right in front of him. And then he watched with great anticipation. Tex reached around behind there, still got his lathe going, still doing all of his work. He grabbed hold of a handful of tobacco and cricket and stuck it in his mouth, where he chewed up all of that tobacco and spit it and cricket parts out for the next hour. You can almost hear Swindoll, even when he writes this story, laughing as he tells it. And I laugh right along with him because that's just funny stuff and I don't care who you are. That's just, that's funny stuff right there. So he's spitting out cricket parts, spitting out, spitting out tobacco juice and so on. But Swindoll said that's not really what caught his attention about Tex. Tex was one of those machinists that had a, a striped hat that was just full of grease from years of wearing it and striped overalls that was full of grease from the years of wearing them. And he said he had spent so much time in that machine shop that he knew when every whistle was going to blow. He knew when the whistle to start work was going to blow. He knew when the brake whistles would blow, when the lunch whistle was going to blow, and when the final whistle of the day was going to blow. Swindoll says that when that final whistle was coming around, Tex was always ready. He was never caught off guard by that whistle. He would go and start washing up, which was quite a task because of all the grease that he had on him. He'd start washing up and be ready to walk out just a minute or two before that final whistle would, would sound. 
He said Tex was never caught off guard by it. So at one point, Charles said to him, Well, Tex, getting close to quitting time, we probably ought to get ready. Tex turned around and looked right at him and he said, Listen, boy, I stay ready so that I can keep from ever having to get ready for quitting time. That's pretty good. I stay ready so that I can keep from ever having to get ready for quitting time. For a Christian, there's a lot of great theology in that. There's a lot of great teaching in that. We need to stay ready so that we can keep from ever having to get ready for quitting time. Because the Bible teaches that the time will come when the Lord is going to sound that final whistle. And for some people, that's going to be an individual event. The Lord's going to sound the whistle and He's going to take you home. The promise of the Bible is that we will all face death at some point. Or, if we do not face death, we will face the coming of the Lord. When He catches up His church and He takes us to be at home with Him. One way or the other, we are going to hear that final whistle. And it is good teaching, good medicine, good wisdom. That we ought to be ready for it when it comes. We ought to be listening for it, prepared and set to go and be with the Lord. For a lot of people, though, we find ourselves saying, what's that whistle going to sound like? I don't know that I would hear it, even when it does come. Folks, you'll hear it. Let me show you what the Bible says it'll sound like. If you're already open to the book of Revelation, keep your finger there, but go with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Starting in verse 13. Paul writes these words. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of them who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now let me stop there for just a second. When you stumble across that term, fallen asleep in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, what you have found is terminology that refers to Christians that have died. Not non-Christians, not everybody that has died, but Christians that have died. That's why Paul's using that term right now, those that have fallen asleep, people that have died in the Lord. And he goes on to say this, verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Right there, you just heard Paul paint the picture of what the final whistle will sound like. I hope you caught it. It's a three-stage whistle. Here's the way Paul says it breaks down. The very first thing that we're going to hear is the shout of Jesus himself. When the Lord leaves heaven, he is leaving with a loud shout. He's coming after his children, and that's the first thing that we will hear. But the Bible says he's not coming alone. He will be followed by the archangel. Now, if the Bible is correct, and there is nothing that is left out of it, then we could assume that the archangel is Michael. Michael will be following him, and we will hear his voice as well. And the third stage, third stage is the trumpet call of God. God himself will blow the horn. And at that moment, when those three stages have all happened, the Lord is collecting his church, and he's taken us home to be with him. The Bible teaches that. Folks, people that believe in Jesus Christ must believe. Catch that. They must believe that Jesus is coming back. And if we don't, we don't believe enough about Jesus. 
and we are not looking for him enough. Because the Bible says that he came once to save the world and he will come the second time to collect his church and to take us home. And that's what it'll sound like. It's going to start with his shout. I wonder what that'll sound like at first. I wanted to believe that that was probably like a, a military leader leading his troops into battle. Be a rallying cry. But I don't think that's what it is at all. When Jesus leaves heaven and he shouts for his children, I think it's going to be a shout of celebration. Some kind of heavenly, woo I'm coming. I'm going to get you. This is going to be great. Michael, maybe Michael's the one who's going to have that sound of a military leader. He's going to be leading the heavenly host in this direction. But Jesus is shouting for his children. Everybody else is going to hear the shout of Michael. And here's the thing you have to know about this. Not only those two shouts, but also the trumpet call of God. No matter where you're at on this earth, you'll hear it. No matter where you're at when those things happen, inside, outside, United States of America, South America, Africa, Asia, doesn't matter, you'll hear it. Because when God shouts, nobody will miss it. When the Lord blows His trumpet, nobody will miss it. It's going to be remarkable. And the teaching of the church says, we need to be paying attention, waiting for it to come, waiting for Him to return, to gather us up, and to take us home. It's final whistle. Three stages of it. Three stages. John gives us his depiction of it as well. Book of Revelation. Sharon read it for us just a few moments ago. So turn there with me. If you still have your finger in that book or if you need to go to the book of Revelation, get there so that you can see this. We're going to start in verse 7 and we're not going to make it much farther than the first word. But I'll read that first verse for you. This is what Sharon read to us just a minute ago. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, that's from the New International Version of the Bible, which is the version that I teach from. It's the version that I preach from. A lot of you follow me in that version. It does not do justice to this verse because the word look actually should have a lot more of a declarative tense to it. The New American Standard Version of the Bible actually does it the right way. Listen to this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Behold, that is the first of 25 times that that word will be used in the book of Revelation. It's a declaration. Behold, he is coming in the clouds. He is on his way, and you would better be watching and listening, because that will be the turning point that everyone will have to recognize and acknowledge. Now, some people might say, why is this such a big deal? Why is it so important that we're looking for it? We can just do life until we get up to that point. But if we're just doing life and we're not waiting expectantly for the return of Christ, then we're not doing any justice to what we've been taught and what we live. I want to help you understand why this is so significant. And we're going to use the Bible to do that. If you received a worship folder this morning when you were coming in, Inside that, there is an insert that looks just like this. I encourage you to take it out. Up across the top, it says nine reasons that Jesus has to return. I'm going to take you through these nine reasons really fast. Terry is going to project all of them up on the screen. Underneath each one of them are some scriptures. We're not going to have time to go through all of those passages this morning. I encourage you to do it on your own so that you can see it for yourself. It'd be a great Bible study for the next nine days to just take each one of these and pick them apart and explore them as far as you can. 
But if you have that sheet and you have something to write with, you might want to write these headings down so that you will know exactly what you're studying. Let's go through them. Terry will run them through for you a couple times. So if you miss them as we go through it this first time, you'll be able to catch up as we make our way through the rest of the message. The first reason that Jesus must return is that the promises of God requires it. The promises of God requires it. Throughout the course of the Bible, God has said that his son is going to return. This is his plan. And God says what he means, and he means what he says. At no point are you ever going to find that God is a liar. So if God says that his son is coming back, his son is coming back. The second reason that Jesus must return is that the promises of Jesus requires it. Jesus said to all of the apostles, I am going to prepare a place for you. When I have done that, I will return and I will take you to be with me. That's just one spot where Jesus said, I'm coming back. And if Jesus says it, he means it. He is not a liar and there is nothing that would keep that from happening. The third reason, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit requires it. The Holy Spirit was the inspiration for all of the Bible. And if we believe that everything that is recorded in Scripture is true, and if we believe that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical writers to say that Jesus was going to return, then the guarantee of the Holy Spirit requires that Jesus returns. It's really as simple as that. God said it, Jesus said it, Holy Spirit said it. The Trinity laid it all out. But there are some other things that go along with those things. Watch this. Number four, God's plan for the church demands it. We're going to get into that a little bit more as we go through this message today. God has a very specific plan for his church, and that's laid out in the New Testament as well. So if God said, this is my plan for my people, that I come back and I gather them up and I take them to be with me, then God's going to do it because of us, because his plan for us as a church requires it. Number five, God's plan for unbelievers requires it. This one's a little more difficult. Because there is a plan for believers, and there is a plan for non-believers. The plan for non-believers is not pleasant, not pleasant at all. And God's purpose in coming back does have an element to it that is for non-believers. So God says, I have to return even because of them, not for them, but because of them, which ties us in then to number six. God's plan for Israel demands his return. We're going to see that very pointedly as we get into this study of the book of Revelation. Some of you know that I am not an Israel worshiper, but I'm an Israel follower. I really like the things that are happening in the nation of Israel because they're tied so closely to the return of Jesus. And what's going on over there, folks, we need to pay attention to. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. We'll get into that more as we go through this as well. Number seven, Christ's humiliation demands it. If you go to Philippians chapter two and you read the first 11 verses, You'll find out that everything that Jesus went through, the humiliating parts of that, were done so that at a particular point in time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the humiliation of Jesus requires, demands that Jesus returns. Number eight, the judgment of Satan demands it. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, you're going to see the judgment of Satan. It's going to be laid out for us very pointedly because of what has to happen even to him. And that's within the heavenly realm. The return of Christ is imperative, imperative. Here's number nine. The expectation of believers demands it. The expectation of the church. Those of us that are looking forward 
to the return of Christ demands it. There are at least nine reasons that Jesus has to come back. But most of them boil down to this. He's coming back for his church. It begs the question in a lot of people's minds then, why is it taking so long? Why hasn't he come back? The early church, the first church, believed that every day was going to be the return of Jesus. For probably 300 years after he ascended to heaven, the church was longing for that point where the Lord would return. And then after he didn't come, we just started to kind of drift away from it. So people ask, why is it taking so long? Why hasn't he already returned? There's a biblical answer for that. We are living in a time that is referred to as the times of the Gentiles. I want to show that to you. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. Keep your finger there in Revelation. Luke chapter 22 is the chapter right after where we're going to be reading. We'll be in chapter 21. Luke 21 verse 24. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now let me give you a little bit of background here. During the Old Testament, God's attention had come to rest on the Jewish people. That's what the Old Testament was all about. It was about the nation of Israel. It was about the Jews. At the end of the Old Testament, according to the book of Jeremiah, God issued to the nation of Israel what he calls a certificate of divorce. God divorced the nation of Israel. He said, I've given you every opportunity, every chance to walk faithful with, faithfully with me, to obey me and to do what I have told you to do, and you won't do it. You just won't. So God said, I'm done. And he gave them a certificate of divorce with this caveat attached to it. If the nation of Israel would return, God would take them back. They have not returned to him. They have not returned to worship, they have not returned to fellowship with him, and they have not returned to a point of accepting that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So at that point, we entered into what is referred to as the intertestamental period. That's the 400-year block of time from the end of the writing of the book of Malachi to the start of the book of Matthew. It's called the intertestamental period. God was fairly quiet during that time. For 400 years, there were no prophets. For 400 years, there were no biblical books written. Some people would argue on that. They would say that during that 400-year period of time, there were some books written that are referred to as the deuterocanonical books or the apocryphal books. They are doctrinal books that some faith systems have grabbed hold of. Most scholars would tell you they're not a part of the Bible. During that 400-year period of silence, God wasn't doing much. Then the Gospel of Matthew came. John the Baptist was born. And he announced the Messiah was coming. At that moment, at that moment when Jesus appeared, the times of the Gentiles began. That's my time. That's your time. That's our time. That's the time where God said, I'm going to take my attention off of the Jews and I'm going to place it on the Gentiles and the Gentiles are going to have an opportunity to know me and to walk closely with me and to fellowship with me and to be my children. We're still living in those times, the times of the Gentiles. If you want to know more about it, go with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Kind of like the way Paul starts this out. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So this point of Israel and the Jews not paying attention to the Lord, 
That's all part of God's plan because the fullness of the Gentiles has not been reached. Now, if we're living in the times of the Gentiles, then you probably want to know what the fullness of the Gentiles might be. That's pretty simple. The fullness of the Gentiles is a number. When a certain number of Gentiles become believers, then Jesus is leaving heaven with a shout, and Michael is following him, and God is blowing a horn, and the Lord is going to return. It's called the fullness of the Gentiles. A lot of people believe that the return of Christ is tied to a date on a calendar, and it is, but God is the only person that knows what that date is. Really, the return of Christ is tied to a number of Gentiles, you and me, non-Jews. When we become, or they become believers, that's the point. There's an excitement that goes with that. Every time I see somebody give their life to the Lord, there's a part of me that just wants to step outside and look towards the heavens. Is this it? Or turn my ears towards heaven. Is this it? Because that's the fullness of the Gentiles. We're living during the time of the Gentiles right now. And every day that passes, every person that becomes a Christian, every one of them gets us closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Because of that, there should be an air of excitement, an air of longing to be with God. Listen to what Paul says, book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The church really should be longing for the return of Christ. The word for that, the biblical word for that, is maranatha. When you hear that word, what it really means is, come, Lord Jesus, come. And it ought to be the attitude of every Christian. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for your appearing. It's interesting, as my kids are getting older now, I can remember thinking some of the things that they were thinking as well. When I was 13 years old and living in Wichita, Kansas, I was thinking, oh, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come back before I get my driver's license. (laughs) I really, really want to drive. And then I started driving, and I thought... I hope Jesus doesn't come back before I get married because I think that's going to be really cool. I want to get married. Then after we were married, I was thinking, I hope Jesus doesn't come back until we have children. And and then thinking, I hope he doesn't come back until they get to be a certain age. And then I started to think, Lord, they're a certain age, come back. (laughs) It's an all right natural progression. And where I'm at right now is this. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But I listen to my kids as they're saying, I still want to experience a lot of these things, so I hope he doesn't come back yet. And and they'll ask questions like this, is that okay to feel that way? You bet it is. You bet it is. But there's a point where we begin to say, Lord, I long for your return. I want you to come back. Part of the reason that some people struggle with that is they're afraid they'll miss him. They're afraid they won't know what he looks like. Jesus might return and, and I won't see him. What if I'm left? John helps us get past that. He really does. We're back in Revelation chapter 1. Pick up in verse 9 with me. John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you have seen and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. A couple things real quick about this. One of them we touched on last week. John is on the island, the prison island of Patmos, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He refused to quit preaching it, and he got sent to prison for it. That's why he was there, and that's what he says. I'm here because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
He went there in roughly the year 90 AD. He stayed there for at least eight years. Then he was called out of prison. He went back to Ephesus where he taught and he preached and lived until he was a, a ripe old age. But then he says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What he means by that, very simple. He was worshiping God on Sunday. On Sunday, he was involved in worship. This is the most pointed passage in all of the Bible that explains why it is that New Testament Christians worship on Sunday and not on Saturday. And there's a lot of questions about that. People will say the Jews worshiped from 6 o'clock Friday night until 6 o'clock Saturday night. That was the official Sabbath. How come we don't worship then? You'll see big billboards that talk about this, ads in the newspaper and so on, all kinds of things like that. Because New Testament Christians worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day, which is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the time John wrote this, the church had been practicing that for roughly 60 years. It'd be like us saying, I went to church on Sunday. That's exactly what he was saying. I was in the Spirit. I was in worship on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning. Folks, if anybody ever questions you about the difference between Sabbath worship and the Lord's Day worship, you take them to the book of Revelation and you show them this passage. It is the most pointed passage in all of the Bible that deals with it. And it was widely accepted. Church historians write about the shift from Sabbath worship to the Lord's Day worship. It is everywhere and commonly accepted. The same way we would say that we worship on Sunday mornings. By the way, a little trivia for you. Sabbath worship is the only one of the Ten Commandments not mentioned in the New Testament as a Gentile command. It was a Jewish command given only to the Jews for Jewish worship. It has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity, and that's why the New Testament doesn't speak about it. We worship on the Lord's Day because we worship a resurrected Christ. Amen? Amen. Make sense to everybody? Shake your head yes. If it doesn't, talk to an elder later. Okay, so people get confused thinking, if Jesus returns, I'm not going to know what he looks like. And that can be really hard. This past week, I asked Sharon to help me out. She got four or five kids in our youth group to draw pictures for me of what it might look like when Jesus returns. Here they are. My hands are open. Come to me. I love that. Maybe Jesus will return with a big bubble over him that says, Jesus, we won't miss him. Aren't those great? They really are. Some of those kids are still sitting in worship with us. Give them a round of applause. Here's how John describes it. This is verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. You might want to just draw a little bracket around that passage in your Bible. Over the top of that bracket, write this word, Jesus. That's what John saw. It was vivid. There was no mistaking it. There was no mistaking that he was looking at the Lord himself. John knew him personally. John had heard his voice himself, but it was 60 years ago. He saw Jesus before the crucifixion. He saw Jesus after the crucifixion, but this is the first time that he has seen him in 60 years, and he recognized who he was. There was no mistaking him. 
Let's pick apart some of what he saw real quick because this was different than anything John had ever seen. We'll start with the robes. They went from his head all the way down to his feet and there was a sash around him. If you go to the Old Testament, those robes signify two things, the high priest and kings. John was looking at a resurrected priest and king. He wasn't looking at the the Messiah that was still on the cross. He was looking at the one that is serving today as our priest and as our king. Beautiful, beautiful, literal depiction of what Jesus would look like. He goes on to talk about his hair. I like this. Imagine that. I like to talk about hair. He saw Jesus with this hair like wool, white as snow. This is not the first place in Scripture where that kind of description is used. In fact, it shows up in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. That's an Old Testament reference to Jesus Christ. And his hair is used to describe him. I love the terminology that Daniel uses. He calls him the Ancient of Days. The silver hair, the white hair that John saw is a beautiful description of the eternality. There's a word for you. Eternality of Christ He was there from the beginning and he will be there long after any end. He is the Alpha and the Omega without beginning and without end. And his hair is a symbol of that. John talks about his eyes back in in the book of Revelation. He's not the only one to talk about that. This is in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of the Lord. And when he returns and looks upon your eyes, his gaze will pierce all the way through. And you will know him for who he is because of his eyes. It'll be a beautiful thing. And as the two of you make that connection, just like John, you'll be moved. The very depths of your core, the very depths of your spirit. He goes on to talk about his voice. His voice was like rushing waters. If you have ever been in an area that has experienced great floods, you know that floodwaters cannot be held back. We had somebody in first service that actually lived through a tsunami. And he said, when we were talking about the rushing waters in church, all he could picture was the wave of that tsunami coming through the area, and everything was changed. When the voice of God is heard by people, everything is changed. So when John says that it was like rushing waters, it was like all the rivers of the book of Revelation coming together and flowing out of his mouth. Ezekiel writes about it as well. Chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. Beautiful picture. Coming out of the mouth of the Lord when John looked and saw him was a double-edged sword. The book of Hebrews would tell us that the word of God is a double-edged sword. It represents the Bible. And there are two different kinds of judgment. One side for believers and one side for non-believers. That's the double-edged sword part of it. The book of Hebrews says that it penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And for believers, that's exactly what the Word of God does. And folks, when the time comes, that's what will happen to non-believers as well. 
it will judge the thoughts and the attitudes of their heart. And if they are found without Christ, that judgment is extreme. It really is. John saw that coming out of his mouth. It's beautiful. Then he saw his face. His face was radiant. It was glowing. Back in the book of Judges, that same thing was seen. Chapter 5, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. You see, it's not just the face of Jesus that glows. It's the face of his children. It's not just the face of Jesus that is radiant with his glory and his spirit. It is the face of his church, the face of all believers. And that's the way it should be. So we go back to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and this is what we find. This letter was written to the churches. There are seven of them that are called out by name, and we read the names of those churches. Each one of those churches is representative of all of the churches at that time. They are representative of our churches today as well. We're going to study those in the coming weeks. There are some very personal things in the letters that are written, some very convicting things in the letters that are written. It's a good study. Again, I tell you, I hope you'll be here for all of this study of the book of Revelation, but don't miss the study on the seven churches. I want to read for you, though, again, a few of the things that John says. Verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All the way through the New Testament, the church has been referred to as the bride of Christ. We have a very special place, the church does, in the kingdom of God. We have a very special place in the heart of God. It is as a husband to his wife, a loving husband to an adoring wife. The relationship is pure and beautiful when we really look at it. And God has put certain things in place to protect his bride, to protect his church. As you read that in the book of Revelation, it would sound like God has assigned an angel to every one of his churches, and that angel is supposed to watch over the church, but folks, there's nothing consistent with the writing of the New Testament about that. Angels have no place in the leadership of churches. They have no ability to be redeemed. They have no ability to be forgiven. It does not make sense whatsoever. So 90% of the scholars would tell you that John was not writing about angels. He was writing about the leaders of the church, the elders. The people that were put in place to protect the bride of Christ. That's the role of the elders. We have several here at this church. Brian Stewart sitting over here to my right. David Bulware led worship and he'll be back up in just a few minutes. Scott Granger plays the bass most Sunday mornings. Ray Brossman is also one of our worship leaders. Jesse James is sitting over here. Bob Parsons, I believe, was in first service, may not be with us right now. Steve Snockenberg is also one of our elders. Those guys have been given the job of watching over this church, protecting it. Now, here's the problem I have. John, when he looks into heaven, he sees angels. I know these guys. They're not angels. They're they're good guys, but they're not angelic. Not at all. So I don't get the terminology here, but that's what it is. John's writing to the leaders of the church. Christy Stewart's looking at Brian going, I told you. (laughs) John's writing to the leaders of the church, and he's saying, you guys pay attention. You pay attention. And you make sure everybody else pays attention. You make sure, leaders, you make sure that the church is ready for quitting time. You make sure that they know what it sounds like, and they're longing for it. 
Because every believer should. Every believer should. Augustine used to use this illustration when he would teach. It's a really good one. A number of preachers have used it since. He would say, I want you to imagine that you're in a conversation with God himself. God sits down across from you and, and he says to you, and you plug your name into this. We'll use Janine Boyd. Janine, I want you to, to think in these terms. I will give you whatever you have asked for. This is God speaking to you, Janine. I will give you whatever you have asked for. I will give you great wealth. I will give you great power, great prominence. I will give you comfort that will go beyond your wildest imagination. I will put you in a position where you will never sin. You will never experience guilt. You will never get bored and you will never die. But the only catch is this. You will also never see me face to face. Would you take the offer? That was Augustine's question. Would you take the offer? Boy, sounds appealing. Until you begin to realize how unappealing that is. A life without Christ, no matter how good it is, is no life at all. Because the Bible teaches us that when we see Jesus face to face, we will literally marvel at it. Listen to this from the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. All of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back, pay back trouble for those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Folks, there it is. When Christians see the face of Jesus, we will marvel at it. And we will never stop. You know, the great thing about heaven is not a new home. It is not a new body. It is not that everybody will be bald. It is not any of those kinds of things. The joy of heaven is the face of Jesus in the presence of our God. And we will marvel at it forever, forever. Here's just a simple illustration for you. And Augustine and I will have been married for 23 years. So for 23 years, actually for 25 years, as long as I've known her, but for 23 years, I have looked into her green eyes every day and I have marveled at the beauty of them. Imagine how much more that will be with Jesus Christ when we marvel at his face. He's coming back. We won't miss him because of the Holy Spirit. We won't miss him because we are his children. And he will take us home to be with him. Man, that's cool. Are you looking forward to it? Amen. Let's practice a biblical word together then. It is Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I'm going to count to three and let's just say it together. One, two, three. Maranatha. Practice that word from time to time. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, those of us that call ourselves your children really do long to be with you. We long for your appearing, long for your return. Father, I pray that we'll be actively involved in ushering that in by sharing our faith with other people. Lord, as I, I read through passages like Second Thessalonians that we read just a moment ago, Father, it also makes me long for your appearing right now to those that don't know you.
So through the power of your spirit, would you get their attention and help them to recognize you for who you are? Lord, let there be great submission and yielding to you as their Lord. And then, Father, let them begin marveling at all of your goodness. Father, I have lived it, I have experienced it, and I have never looked back. I've never regretted one day with you. And I know that's true of every believer here. Let it be the message of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.